Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, reads like this. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The King of Kings and His eternal kingdom. One of the things I always hope to show people is the degree of harmony that is found right through the Bible and with that harmony comes a consistent message. In this little Advent series, we've been looking at some of the prophetic messages which came from the lips or the pen of Old Testament prophets, men appointed by God, to whom and through whom God spoke the things that Old Testament Israel needed to hear, but messages that actually contained great depth of meaning. Very different men at different times, in different locations, in different circumstances, and yet from all of them came a constant and an unmissable drumbeat. Something that God will do, which will be unparalleled and unrivaled and desperately needed. And so different are the circumstances in which God will keep repeating this same message that this morning we're going to see how he first started to deliver that message through the dream of a pagan king. And not just any pagan king, as we'll see. So we begin this morning considering a pagan king and his troubling dream. Just over 700 years before Jesus was born, in the northern part of Israel, 10 of Israel's 12 tribes were completely overthrown by the Assyrian Empire. And their identity as those 10 tribes of Israel was lost and would never be recovered or restored. That happened in the year 722 BC. And that left just two surviving tribes of the original 12. And they were in the south, still using the city of Jerusalem as their capital, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, but collectively known as Judah. That was the much larger of the two tribes. But in the year 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem and then destroyed it leaving it almost in complete ruin. And in the process, took thousands of Jews as captives into exile in Babylon. Now, all of that was actually God's active judgment against Israel and Judah. It was his punishment of them for their very great sin, their rebellion against him, their rejection of him and their very great idolatry as they turned to other religions and other gods. Now, this Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he was a very shrewd king. And he had a scheme whereby, out of all of these exiles that he took into his country, 
he would take the brightest and the best of their young men, and he would train them up. He'd train them in the language and the culture of Babylon, and he'd educate them so that they were able to work for him kind of as civil servants in his country. And of the young men taken from Jerusalem at that, on that occasion, four of them are given very specific mention in the Bible. The first is Daniel. And as we've seen, uh, one of the Old Testament prophetic books bears his name and tells his story. And with him, three other young men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. All four of them would be given Babylonian names when they got to Babylon. And rather confusingly and interestingly, we tend not to use Daniel's Babylonian name, which was Belteshazzar. We just continue to know him really as Daniel. But with the other three, we actually tend to forget their Hebrew names and we remember them by their Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They of fiery furnace fame. Whilst Daniel, of course, he would be the one miraculously saved from death after being thrown into the lion's den. Well, a very long story cut short for this morning. These four young Israelite men are working for King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. When the king begins to have a series of very strange dreams, and one dream in particular really troubles him. He believes it has some special meaning, but he can't fathom it out. So he turns to all of his wise men and advisors within his royal court. Daniel tells us uh, earlier in chapter 2 that they were, they were magicians and astrologers and sorcerers. And the king wants them to work out the meaning of his dream. But perhaps he himself has some serious doubts about just how genuine this shifty group of individuals really are. If I tell them what my dream was, he thinks to himself, and they come back and tell me what they think it means, how can I be certain that they haven't just made something up? I know what I'll do. I won't even tell them what the dream was. They have to be able to tell me what my dream was and then tell me the interpretation. Then I'll know they're genuine. Well, of course, that ploy finds them out all right, doesn't it? They protest that what the king seeks of them is impossible. Only the gods who are not of this world could know such a thing, they say. Uh, only one error in that statement, of course. It's not gods, plural. There aren't many gods. It's just the one true living God. But apart from that, they were right. They've been exposed as the con men they really are. And Nebuchadnezzar, just as he had threatened, if they were not able to tell him the dream and its interpretation, begins to have them all executed. Well, Daniel and his three friends realise that as the king begins to see off all his royal staff, they actually will soon be next on the list. 
So the four of them take this whole matter to the Lord in prayer and ask if God might make known to them both the king's dream and its meaning. And God does. And he reveals it to Daniel. And so Daniel is able to go to the king and reveal uh, in perfect detail the dream that he had and its meaning. And that's the reading that we had earlier in chapter 2 of Daniel, of this great statue with its head of gold and its uh, upper torso and arms of silver and then bronze as you go down the statue and, and then the legs of iron and the feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And Daniel is able to explain to King Nebuchadnezzar uh, what this means. Now it's clearly stated by Daniel in the interpretation that the, the golden head of this image refers to Nebuchadnezzar. But as to the rest of this image, well, over the years, there's been quite a lot of debate and discussion as to which other kingdoms or empires might be referred to in these three other sections, the chest and arms, the belly and thighs, and the legs and the feet. Uh, most commonly, uh, they are taken to speak uh, of the, the Medo-Persian Empire. That would be the empire that overthrows Babylon. And then thirdly, uh, of Greece, and then finally of Rome, uh, and that seems very acceptable to me. Uh, actually, later in the book of Daniel, from chapter 8 onwards, you'll actually find Persia and Greece mentioned. But in some ways, who they are is not quite as important as to what happened to them, and why, and what came next. The dream concluded with a stone being cut, but not by human hands. And the stone is used to strike the feet of this image, which brings the whole thing crashing down. And all of the rubble and debris, it's like it's just being ground into dust and then blows away in the wind, and there is not a trace of it left. Everything is gone. And Daniel says the meaning is very straightforward. Here are all of these earthly kingdoms and empires, from Nebuchadnezzar down to Rome. And the time, at the time, each kingdom seems, well, it seems as if they have complete sway over everything. But there's never been such a kingdom on this earth. Never, never will there be. There are no creatures who have so, so much control and authority in this world, although it might appear that way at times to us. But there is this one stone, a stone not made by human hands, a stone not of earthly origin, which is responsible for the collapse of all of those kingdoms. There is one stone which has complete authority. There is one stone which is superior in power over all of those kingdoms. And this stone will grow into a mountain. And this mountain will last forever. 
and it will never be defeated and it will never be overthrown. It will never fall into someone else's hands. It will not be like any of these earthly kingdoms which follow one after the other. So that was this pagan king's troubling dream. And we discover that this pagan king's dream speaks of Christ. There are a number of images which are found in this dream. Uh, and those images we find in other parts of the Bible. There's the reference to the stone, of course. We know that Jesus is referred to in the Bible as a stone, as the chief cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected. Here is a stone not made with hands, a stone not of human origin, which is the whole point of the announcement made by the angel to Mary and Joseph. This baby to be born in Bethlehem is not of normal human origin. He is the result of the power of God's Holy Spirit so that the child to be born will be Emmanuel, God with us. We read elsewhere of that which is not made by human hands. So listen to these few verses. The opening verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 we know that if our earthly house, our body, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And then in Hebrews chapter 9, Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And then a few chapters later, again in Hebrews, in chapter 11, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Not something built with human hands. And those verses, that they're all speaking of promised, certain, eternal, spiritual realities. And there are, there are types and shadows and, and hints and glimpses of these things in the Bible. But these are things which have been secured and established by God in Christ. And Christ is the only door by which you may enter into these things. He alone is the way and the truth of the, and the life into these spiritual realities so that you may have that in your life which is not of human hands. It's not of men's doing. It's all of God. It's a divine work. And because it's God's doing, it will last forever. And it is certain. And it is strong. And you can rest your life upon it. 
And it will never be overcome. It will never be overthrown. An eternal and heavenly home is promised under our great prophet and priest and king, the Lord Jesus. And the things of eternity, of which those verses speak, the things of eternity should be of great concern to you because eternity is very, very long. And the things of eternity are settled for you by what decision you come to regarding this Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, where you stand with the Lord Jesus has settled where you will spend eternity. So what have you decided about Christ? Well, back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream where the stone becomes a mountain. Mountains feature a lot in the Bible. It was frequently upon mountains that God met with his prophets at significant times in Old Testament history. Probably the two best-known mountains in the Old Testament are Mount Sinai, where God met with Moses, and maybe Mount Carmel, where Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal and Asherah. Why mountains? Why was it that when we read about the transfiguration of Jesus, it was up on a mountaintop? Well, the mountain and being on the top of the mountain, well, it just signifies and illustrates the, the loftiness and the grandeur and the holiness of God. That God is so transcendent in wisdom and power and righteousness over all things that men had to climb up to meet with God and usually only those who he had chosen and called to do such a thing. So, and the general imagery of a mountain is frequently used to describe the dwelling place of God and of being in the presence of God, the Lord's holy mountain or the mountain of the Lord. Spiritual, divine truths and realities uh, which are sure and certain and holy and immovable and everlasting, but they are distinct and separate from this world. And so it's not down amongst sinful men and women that these occurrences take place. It's on the mountain where God dwells because God is on high, because God is over us and transcendent. And that this imagery of being on the mountain signifies those spiritual realities about God. The mountain, this mountain in, in this dream is is to be the work of God. This mountain is the presence of God. This mountain is the place to which God would gather his people to himself. It's a picture of the rule and kingdom of Christ in this world. It's a picture of the spread of his gospel and of his church as this whole mountain fills the whole earth. This is what Jesus has come into the world to establish and to accomplish. And so thirdly, this morning, we're, we're left with this picture of the everlasting mountain 
of the ever-living God. Well, let's think about this image which is brought to complete destruction in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We notice that the starting point is the head, which Daniel says is Nebuchadnezzar. And then as you move down the body of the statue, that is to move forward in time through the centuries and then concluding with the Roman Empire at the bottom, the legs and the feet. Did you notice that the most precious metal is at the top? The gold head, Nebuchadnezzar? And that is followed by gradual deterioration from gold to silver, from silver to bronze, from bronze to iron, from iron to iron mixed with clay. It goes from superior to inferior. These empires would become more and more fragmented as each previous empire was conquered and incorporated into the next one. And oceans of ink have been written, putting forth all kinds of notions and ideas about this passage and the later visions in the book of Daniel. But let's just keep things really simple this morning. Babylon, where Daniel was with Nebuchadnezzar, that was in the classical sense a single united nation under one king. But Babylon will be overthrown by the Medes and the Persians, which was a kind of coalition of two nations, hence the silver chest, but with two arms. The Greek Empire was ushered in by the conquests of Alexander the Great. Greece started out as an undivided nation, just as Babylon had been, but Greece would fragment north and south. The Roman Empire would find itself fracturing east and west and later would split into ten smaller kingdoms and so you have the iron legs giving way to feet and ten toes of clay. And it will be during the Roman Empire that this stone gets introduced. This stone with no human origin, this stone with no human explanation the baby of Bethlehem, the newborn king who only angels could introduce and explain. All that God has said would happen has happened. It is God who controls all of this world's history. And this fills me with hope and with peace and with assurance no matter what might be going on in the world. There is no event, there are no people, there is no organisation which lies outside of God's eternal will and purpose. Do not think that whenever God acts in this world, it must always be and can only ever be something which is good in your eyes. Daniel is in Babylon and Jerusalem is in ruins at that time because God has moved in holy and righteous judgment against them. God has brought that devastation upon them. 
Now we look at that in our human eyes and we look at the devastation that was caused. We look at the thousands taken into exile in Babylon and we say, that's not good. But it was God. Be careful. Do not think that those things which happen in this world, which are not as you would have them be, must be the result of some great wickedness and cannot be under God's influence or control. You must understand God and his ways as he has revealed himself to be in his word, not as you might like to think of him. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. It is God who raises them. It is God who puts them down. What did Daniel say to Nebuchadnezzar? Verse 37 of Daniel 2. You, O king, are a king of kings. Now, the world would say, Oh, what a man! But Daniel goes on. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Earthly eyes look at Nebuchadnezzar and look at Babylon and say, it is all of man. With our Bibles open, we say no. It was all of God. It is clearly, clearly stated in God's word. And he goes on. Wherever the children of men dwell, wherever the beasts of the field are, he has given, he, God, has given all of these things into your hand. It is God who raises them. It's God who puts them down. There's nothing in this world outside of God's control. All around the world, you can find the ruins and the remnants of once great cities and civilizations. The dynasties of China all came and went. The royal houses of Europe grew strong and ebbed and flowed, with many eventually overthrown. And the few that remain, largely now ceremonial, increasingly questioned regarding their place and relevance in the 21st century. The tentacles of European nations once reached out across the whole world, but have long lost their former power and influence. The political map of Europe, if you're into those kinds of things, you'll know that's been redrawn so many times. And even in recent centuries, the borders of various nations have moved, even new nations created and old ones abolished. Well, all of those things are pictured in this statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Rising, falling. Where are they now? But it is Christ who reigns supreme over them all. It is Christ who brings the things of this world to nothing. He arrives as a stone, but will become as a mountain that fills the whole earth. He's established his spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God that's within you if you're a Christian believer this morning. 
And it's an everlasting kingdom, says Daniel. It will never be destroyed. None will ever be able to overthrow it. None will ever be able to overtake it, as happens with earthly kingdoms, says Daniel. It will stand forever, says Daniel. Don't you want to be in this kingdom? Isn't this where your soul needs to be? The everlasting mountain of the ever-living God and Christ? Christ's kingdom will never fail. And from all of this world's kingdoms, men and women and boys and girls are being called into the kingdom of Christ. This is what the gospel is all about. When the angel announced that this baby born in Bethlehem will save his people from their sins, not one of his people will be missed or lost or remain unaccounted for. We've had some terrible images this last week or two on our, on our news uh, papers and on our news programs. The images of men searching for migrants who've fallen out of a sinking boat in the English Channel. The rescue services looking for those boys who'd fallen through the ice on a lake. Who are we looking for? How many? Do we have them all? How can we know? Desperate, desperate searches, frantic. All who are to be saved are known. They're known to Christ. All who are to be saved will be saved. Saved by Christ. Now, all kinds of evil still take place in this world. Opposition and persecution is absolutely guaranteed for those who follow Christ. But this mountain will continue to grow and grow. And it's Christ and his mountain that you need to keep your heart and your mind focused on, not the things of this world. Those who are lost in sin and darkness and who persist in it, God will give them over to their sins. He will allow their sins to multiply. He says so through his apostle in the book of Romans. So the fact that great wickedness is multiplying in the world, that should, in one sense, be a source of encouragement to you. Because it tells you, number one, the Bible is true, and it's proving that truth to us, as strange as that may seem to us. Paul rejoiced that he was counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ at the hands of sinful men. But he did that because he saw this bigger picture. He understood who this Jesus is and what his Saviour was doing in the world. This stone is becoming a mountain and it's filling the whole earth. He knew that all the powers and governments in this world are just as these four pictured in the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And there is no power in this world that is any different. They are worldly, they are temporary, they are fleeting, they are passing, they are soon gone, and they are under Christ. And in Christ Jesus... The born-again believer is translated out of the things of this world and into the kingdom of God. Have you been translated into the kingdom of Christ?
the believer has been elevated from the things of this world to have their feet firmly planted on the mountain of God where they shall live and reign forever with Christ. Hence, in Luke chapter 1, He, Christ, will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest and the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of His kingdom there shall be no end. This is the Jesus born of a virgin in Bethlehem who we remember every Christmas. And for us as Christian believers, well, actually, we remember him all the time in all that he is, don't we? He is the King of kings. But is he your king? His is an everlasting kingdom. But are you in it? Well, may the Lord in his grace enable you in your own soul to deal with those two questions this morning. Is he your king? And are you in his everlasting kingdom? that will never fade or fail or fall. And you will never fade or fail or fall if you are in it, in Christ.